0: Um, But hey everybody, welcome to RUF. Uh, My name's Thomas, if I haven't met you before. Uh, At RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. That means that there's something in us, fundamentally, that kind of balks at the idea of uh, the best thing in life, meaning salvation, comes apart from something that we do. Uh, so on the one hand, we want to convince ourselves, maybe we're too bad, I need to be better in order for God to love me. Or other people, we're so confident that we're good, that God must love us. Uh, but the Christian gospel is that we are saved completely based on the finished work of Jesus. Uh, and that's what we're all about in RUF, that's what you're going to hear about every single week. And so this semester, we're doing an Old Testament overview uh, in a series called Every Story Whispers His Name. And that's kind of an assumption that we have. Uh, So every week in large group, you're going to hear a sermon from the Old Testament. um, And the point kind of being that the Old Testament shows us the heart of Jesus, and it gives us wisdom for the modern world. So the Old Testament shows us the heart of Jesus, and it gives us wisdom for the modern world. And thus far, we've considered, um, starting off the series, we started in Luke 24, uh, where we kind of considered, how did Jesus read the Bible? What did that mean? Um, And Jesus saw his face in the Old Testament. He saw himself on every single page. And so he invites us to do the same. And then last week we considered the creation of everything. And so this week we turn to something that is a little bit different. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen like a movie, I want to say probably from the early 2000s, any movie. uh, There was kind of this thing that has since become a meme where it's like at the beginning of the movie... You see, like a character walking, and then something tragic happens, and then you hear like a record scratch, and then like freeze frame, and then you know there's a narrator, and he'll say like, "Yep, that's me." (laughs) I bet you're probably wondering how I got here. Um, Okay, so that situation, that's what this passage is for us. This passage that we're looking at tonight. It's a passage that that shows it's relevant to us, and it kind of explains to us why is it that our experience of life is the way that it is. And even if you're looking at the context, like, in the Bible, immediately before this passage, there is, like, the most joyous occasion in all of creation. This, This man and woman, Adam and Eve, get married, and Adam is singing a song of delight over his wife. And then there's this passage, and then immediately after it, the first murder. So we have this kind of gap here where we have you know, marital bliss and homicide. And there's something in between it. And as a married person, I can tell you those things are closer than you think. Um, don't tell Molly I said that. It's a, it's a total joke. Um, but so to answer this question, it's, it's kind of how did we get from this place of like, marital bliss and, and happiness and creation to this place of discord, this place of, of murder, this place of pain? And this is a question that the first readers of this book would have been curious about, just like we're curious about it. Like, how is it that life is the way that it is? Uh, In the first, like, books, or the first passage of this book, we see that creation is good, that it's a good thing, and that God created humanity to be his representatives in creation. But yet, in our experience, there's so much that's wrong with this world, and there's so much that's wrong with our own experience. We live in a world of war, we live in a world of oppression, we live in a world that has things like divorce and murder and pain and suffering. And so how do we make sense of that? Uh, I recently came across this quote from the author H.G. Wells, did anybody have to read anything by him in high school? I feel like that was pretty common, like The Time Machine or War of the Worlds or something. But, so these are two quotes from him that are less than, uh, less than 10 years apart. The first one says this, uh, What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude, prelude to things that man has yet to do. Uh, so what he's saying there, he's kind of expressing this great kind of progressive hope that uh, mankind has better things ahead of us than are behind us. And you can see that from all of the technology and stuff that he sees happening, and he's like, has every reason to be hopeful about the future. So he says this in 1937. But then in 1946, less than ten years later, this is what he says. He says, the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapien, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. Over the course of 10 years, he had that drastic of a change. Is that not relatable in our own experience? Don't we oscillate between a sense of, oh, things are getting better, there's hopefulness, there's good in the world, but then we're completely crushed one second later. Or maybe even we think about that with our own selves. We, we, we think that we're doing really well with something, and then all of a sudden we're just going right back to those same old patterns, doing the exact same things that we've done before. We go back and forth between this kind of progressive hope and regressive despair. And I think this passage addresses us in these universal struggles. It meets us there. So as we look at this passage tonight, we're just going to ask two questions. Uh, First, what's wrong with the world? And second, what's God going to do about it? So what's wrong with the world and what's God going to do about it? Uh, But before we get started, I want to pause and ask for the Lord's help, so let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this evening and for the fact that you have uh, spoken about uh, realities that we experience. Uh, Lord, as we look at this um, sad passage of Scripture, the first sad thing that we see happening in the Bible, I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see um, what this means for us. Help us to leave with a better understanding of ourselves, with a better understanding of you. And Lord, I pray that um, we would be encouraged uh, to love you and to love our neighbor. Uh, we need your help, Lord, so will you send your spirit uh, and bring your word with power. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first question we're going to ask What is wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? So up to this point in the story of the Bible, uh, the, question, the answer to that question would be nothing. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. God has made the world completely good. Uh, he says seven times in the opening passage of Genesis, good. This world is good. It's very good. He delights over his creation. Uh, he creates this world abundantly. He is, uh, he's a king, but he's kind of an unusual king, and he lets... Humanity bear his image in creation and gives them meaningful work to do. So from Genesis 1 to 2, if you're just reading it, we have every reason to think that things are going to continue to get better. Like God has given Adam and Eve, our first parents, he's given them everything that they need in order to succeed. So when we come to this passage, we're just kind of expecting that to continue. But something different happens. So what happened? we see kind of first off an intruder shows up on the scene. Uh, And the intruder is a talking snake. So that's not quite a normal intruder that you would expect. Uh, In fact, in reading this passage, it seems really random uh, because there's just this great story of, of marital bliss, of like the happiest moment in human history. And all of a sudden, it says now, you know, the serpent was the craftiest in the field. It's like, what's even going on there? There's no explanation of where this snake comes from. Uh, And at the beginning, we don't really know much about him, but as it goes on, it seems that he is kind of a uh, a representative of evil, that he is uh, Satan. He's the evil one. And I think that can be hard for us when we come to this passage. It doesn't really seem like there's much explanation about where evil comes from. I think that can be frustrating, right? Um, but for me, when I look at this passage, I, I think that's actually encouraging. Uh, it doesn't really take much time to say, like, "Oh, this is where things come from." Actually, evil is portrayed in Scripture from the beginning as something that has absolutely no business being in God's good creation. It's an outside invader, and so when we read the passage and we're like, "Well, that doesn't make sense. Why is that? There? Why is that there?" We're actually reading it correctly because it doesn't make sense. Sin has no business being in God's good world. And yet, it's there. Uh, St. Augustine said, trying to explain evil is like trying to see darkness or trying to hear silence. It says evil is not really a thing, truly. It's actually just the absence of goodness or the perversion of what is good. And so we shouldn't really be surprised that we don't necessarily see some grand unveiling of where this came from. It's just assumed it's here. And it doesn't make any sense. So moving forward, what what goes on with this snake? What does he do? And we see first off in verse 1, he attacks the woman with lies. He says, did God actually say? Did God actually say that you're not supposed to eat the fruit of this certain tree? And well, I mean, the short answer is uh, yes, he did. Uh, in Genesis two sixteen, the Lord says to the people, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, that surely die in the original language, so Hebrew is an economical language, and so it doesn't repeat words unless it really matters. But surely die in Hebrew there is die, die. Like you will die, die. <laughs> it's emphasis. It's not going to be good if you do that thing. So God, in the strongest language possible, is telling Adam and Eve not to do this thing. And so how does the woman respond? Uh, She responds, and she's clearly a little hazy on what God said at this point. Uh, She says, well, God said not to eat the fruit of the tree, I guess. And then I think he said not to touch it. And if we did that, then we were going to die. So she's a little hazy, maybe on what God said. But generally speaking, she still had the main idea of what God had said. But after uh, the serpent has kind of created a sense of doubt, he then hits her with a bold-faced lie and says to her, you will not surely die. You will not die, die. And then he calls God's character into question. He says the reason that God doesn't want you to eat of this is because he doesn't want what's best for you. He knows that if you eat of this, then you're going to become like him. And that's a threat to his power. He's saying that God is power-hungry. God is selfish. He's completely contradicting the story that we've seen thus far in Scripture of God being a, a delegator, of God giving his people meaningful work, of God giving his people everything that they need. He's completely lying. And what happens? Well, it says the woman eats, and she's, she's named Eve later. That's just why we're referring to her as the woman here. She eats, and then Adam eats with her. And there are terrible, terrible consequences that come from this. So what are those consequences? Where does this leave us? Uh, The Jesus Storybook Bible, which I've plugged a couple times, there's a copy back there on the back table if you want to borrow it. It's amazing. Uh, But it sums up kind of the consequences like this. It says, A terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. And it wasn't a dream, it was a nightmare. A dove flew from Adam's hand, a deer darted into a thicket, It was as if they were frightened by something. A chill was in the air. Something strange was happening. They had always been naked, but now they felt naked and wrong, and they didn't want anyone to see them, so they hid. So these are the disastrous effects of the first sin, of sin entering into the world, making its presence known, and, and really still being nonsensical, not knowing where it came from or why it's here. It doesn't make sense in God's creation but it does affect us. Uh, And I think two primary ways that sin affects us, uh, just kind of two terms that I've heard people refer to, um, sin leaves us as glorious ruins and as hungry ghosts. Okay, sin leaves us as glorious ruins and as hungry ghosts. Okay, so first, what what does that mean? Uh, Glorious ruins. So there's a beautiful old church uh, in downtown St. Louis where I used to live, um, and it's Like, absolutely gorgeous when you go inside it, but it's kind of dilapidated. But when you go at the right time, the way that the sunlight hits off of everything, it's absolutely gorgeous. There's these vines that are growing all over it. It's like a photo op for, you know, like engagement sessions and stuff like that. They'll have restaurant pop ups inside of it. So it's clearly like a glorious scene. It's absolutely beautiful. But the problem is, beautiful as it may be, it's also a ruin. It's not living up to its created purpose. The purpose of it was was for it to be a house of worship, and that's not what it is. And it's like, even if you spend enough time in there, as beautiful as it may be, there's something sad about it. It's a glorious ruin. There's dignity, there's beauty in it, but, but it's just not the way it's supposed to be. And that's part of what the fall into sin did to us all it leaves us in this place where we have a glory, we have a dignity that outpaces our actual behavior. Like there's something so glorious and astonishingly beautiful about us, and yet we just don't act like it. We're capable of astonishing good and cruel evil right next to each other. Like we're familiar with the concept like This is, okay, yeah, this is biographical. Like, we're able to have a terrible argument with our spouse on the way to church, calling them names, saying terrible things, and then to pass the peace with people during the greeting time. Like, we're capable of that sort of thing. (laughs) We're glorious ruins. There's good and there's bad so close together. But also, we're hungry ghosts. Hungry ghosts. Uh, We're made for perfect relationships with God, with others, and with creation, and yet sin interrupts all of these relationships. The way that it, it introduces an inability to be at peace. I mean, you think about a ghost, like it can't take things in. But a hunger ghost is someone who can't take things in enough to be satisfied, but has kind of a hunger that just will not go away. And we see this actually in the passage. As soon as Adam and Eve figure out that they are naked, what do they do? It says they take parts of creation and they use it to cover them. This is the first time that we see this sort of relationship between humanity and creation. Humanity is using creation to cover their shame. Humanity is using creation for something that it was never intended to do. And we can do this as well. I mean, we look to good things. We use God's good creation to try and fill the void that we find in ourselves. We can look to grades and accomplishment to fulfill us though we know deep down that only God can. We can look to food and drink to delight us, but we know that only God truly can delight us. And we can look to things like romance and sex to give us affirmation, but we know that only God can. It's never enough. You see, sin introduced a a crack into our psyche, right? We have a hunger that can never be satisfied, a thirst that can never be quenched. So this is what sin kind of, how it leaves us. So this is an ancient story, right? And, you know, we've talked about how this intersects with our, you know, daily lives. But what, what import does this tragic story have for our lives? Like, what keeps it from just being, you know, a tragic story that's like, wow, that's really sad. Don't really have to do anything with that. What, in what way does it apply to us? I think there's a couple ways I can think of, but here's, here's two. I think positively, uh, this story, it validates our sense that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And that's good news. It validates that when we're treated poorly and we feel badly about that, what this passage says to us is, you're right. That's not how it's supposed to be. Or When we look out in culture and we, we see things like oppression, we see things like racism, and we feel on a gut level, that is not right. This passage says, you're absolutely right. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It affirms kind of our gut intuition that when we look out at the world and we see all of the suffering, it's not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, there was a time where that wasn't even a thing. Like sin, death, decay, it's not at all a part of the like created order. It's a disruption. It's something that doesn't make sense. But I think secondly, it shows us, and this one might be a little bit more of a harder pill to swallow, uh, when we talk about what's wrong with the world. It shows us that what's wrong with the world is actually us. We're what's wrong with the world. And that's tough. Pain and suffering are not natural to this world. Decay is not natural to this world. Divorce is not supposed to happen. Abuse is not supposed to happen. Why do these things happen? They are the tragic result of believing the lie that God doesn't love us. They're the tragic result of us putting ourselves in God's seat. They're us thinking that we're wiser than him, that we know better what we're doing. We repeat the same lie, that first lie that was told. So that's kind of the problem, which can be a bit depressing. That's what's wrong with the world, right? But what's God going to do about it? What's God going to do about it? And as we just kind of look at this, I just want to survey kind of how God responds to Adam and Eve in their sin. And I think we can learn something from that. So what does God do to Adam and Eve in their sin? I think first we see that he moves towards them. He moves towards them. After the terrible lie, God shows up to the scene. It says that he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Apparently that was a custom. That was something that he and his children, Adam and Eve, did. And what does God do? He asks three questions. He says, first, where are you? Second, he asks, who told you that you were naked? And then third, have you eaten from the tree? And of course, God knows the answers to these questions, but why is he asking them? What's he doing? I think what God's doing is he's treating his image bearers with dignity. He's asking them a question. Like everything other than God just completely shutting stuff down and ending everything at this moment is pure grace. Like God did not have to do any of this. If you've seen those kind of like how it should have ended things, like the Bible would get to Genesis 3 and it'd be like, the end, you know, that's how it should have ended. But that's not how it ended. God moves towards Adam and Eve in their sin. And I I wonder if that's kind of counterintuitive, that's different from how you might think about sin. Because a lot of times the ways that we talk about sin uh, in church culture can be really unhelpful. Uh, We can make it seem as if, The fact that we sin means that we're disgusting, that we're terrible, and that no one would ever want to move toward us. And I just want to tell you that is a lie from the pit of hell. What we see here is after the first sin, God himself moves towards the people who have just committed that sin. Your sin doesn't mean you're disgusting. It means that you are a glorious ruin. There's no reason for it in your life. There's no good reason for it. And it is evil and it is wrong. But God still sees you as his image bearer. He still sees you as glorious and beautiful. And he promises to do something about it. So God moves toward us in our sin. But second, and this one's really important, and again it stings, he tells us how bad it is. He tells us exactly how bad it is. Uh, we see in the passage that God pronounces three sets of curses. He uh, does one for the serpent, one for the woman, one for the man. And he tells them the consequences of their actions. And each of these things, we're not going to go into too much of what each one means, but essentially they're just a curse kind of that's germane to the realms that each of them are in. And it's basically saying the things that you do on a daily basis are now going to be really hard for you. But this kind of brings up a, a question... Um, is God overreacting here? Like, really, I mean, is God overreacting to the fact that the first man and the first woman ate a piece of fruit that he told them not to eat? Like, couldn't he just kind of, I don't know, move on? Couldn't he just kind of uh, forgive them? And I just want to say, I think that that's an extremely valid question. And that's an honest question that we come to when we look at the scripture. Like, why is it that there had to be this kind of long resolution to this? You know? Why couldn't God have just been like, oh, okay, we're fine. Don't worry about it. And I think here's the reason why. Uh, I think what happened in the garden, it was not simply the breaking of an arbitrary rule, but it was the breaking of God's heart. It wasn't just breaking a rule, it was the breaking of God's heart. Think about it this way Imagine you're married uh, and you find out. Unfortunately, that your spouse has been like repeatedly cheating on you for a long period of time Uh, It comes to light and they come to you kind of like immediately after and they say I'm so sorry I shouldn't have done that. Could you forgive me? And understandably in that moment, you might need a little bit of space You might need a little bit of time Uh, Because it's not a transactional thing. It wasn't just something random that they did. It actually it breaks your heart it's a, it's a relational fracture. And so imagine after you say, like well, I want to forgive you, but I'm probably going to need some time. What if your spouse says to you, it's like, why can't you just forgive me? Right? If you just say the word, this will go away. The problem would be over if you would just forgive and forget. Here's my point. I think we're doing the exact same thing when we put that onto God. <laughs> When we say, like, well, why couldn't God just, like, do away with it? Uh, we're, we're kind of like the ones that broke the rules here. We're the ones that broke his heart. We don't really have the right to demand that sort of thing. And we're assuming that what happened was just an arbitrary rule, you know, and that God would be stupid to uphold that sort of rule. But that's not actually what we see in the passage. We see that all of God's rules are good. And we see that he loves his creation And so to violate those things, it's not just a minor thing. It's a big deal. But God, he moves towards us, right? He tells us how bad it is. And then finally here in this passage, we see he promises to fix it. He promises to fix it. So tucked into one of these curses that we see here is a surprisingly beautiful promise. And speaking to the serpent, which we find out is Satan, The Lord says in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's a lot there. Uh, First thing to note, the word enmity there, uh, it's not a word we commonly use, but it just means hatred or war. Uh, Essentially what is happening here is that God is declaring war on Satan. Satan. And that's an important thing to note, that the the consequence of sin is not God declaring war on humanity. And it's not God declaring war on creation. It's God declaring war on Satan. That's huge. God declares this war on Satan, and that will be played out in this creation. And then the words there, it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, Bruise, the, the Hebrew word is actually a little stronger. It could be like crush. So it says, he shall crush your head, and you shall crush his heel. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, in his book, The Biggest Story, kind of sums this up this way, saying that in this verse, God promised that one of Eve's children would someday, eventually, sooner or later, crush the head of that nasty snake. Nobody knew when or how, but she would have a child who would put things right. This is what theologians throughout the age have referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, Uh, which is a fancy way to say the first gospel, the first good news. So the question needs to be asked then, who is this snake crusher? Who is going to crush the head of the serpent? Uh, Christians throughout the ages have all agreed that it's Jesus. Jesus is uh, the God-man, fully God, fully man, the son of Eve who came to crush the head of the serpent to deal a decisive death blow To the enemy. But not only is Jesus a son of the woman, we see that Jesus is also the second Adam. That's this passage that we read earlier, that Abby read, Romans Romans 5. Jesus is not only a son of Eve, he's the second Adam. Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his current reign, he succeeds everywhere that the first Adam failed. Jesus crushes the serpent. And how does he crush the serpent? He does it by himself being crushed. Remember, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's talking about the cross. It's talking about Jesus' suffering. And what did Jesus' suffering achieve? In doing this, Jesus creates a new humanity. He creates a new humanity. A new humanity that is characterized not by condemnation, but by justification. Justification not by death, but by resurrection life, not by shame, but by security. So as we're closing up quickly, I just want to ask you to consider what might that mean? What might that mean for you in your life? What would look different if you believe that? Do you recognize within yourself that this world is not the way it should be? I think we all do on some level, like you think of maybe the most polarizing time that I can remember in American history, like 2016, Uh, you've got, you know, the the, the Trump crowd, you've got the Hillary Clinton crowd, Uh, and the one thing that unites both of them is they both believe fundamentally this world is not the way it should be, and that their person had a way of fixing it. See, this is a universal recognition that we have. So if you recognize within yourself that this world is not the, same, the way that it should be, do you feel this weight of painful family relationships, of, of chronic mental health issues, of injustice, of hypocrisy, of abuse? If you do, Jesus, the snake crusher, the second Adam, offers a better way. So maybe you're here tonight and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Uh, I want to ask you, are you ever tired? of this world? Are you ever tired of this world? What about yourself? Are you ever tired of yourself? Jesus offers a way to live in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. He offers a way to deal with that. And if you're here and you're a Christian, the call is the same. Jesus continually offers a better way than our strategies of trying to fix ourselves. He comes to us in our sin. He calls it what it is, and he fixes it. And the more and more that we appropriate that, the more and more that we look to Jesus' finished work, the more and more we are able to put to death the work of the serpent in our own lives. The more that we look to the finished work of Jesus, we, we are enabled to be more secure. We're enabled to be more at peace. We're enabled to be more and more concerned with the well-being of others. See, through faith in Jesus, we are brought into the new humanity. And we are enabled to live lives that reflect the character of God. Let's pray.